Amen. Ryan, can we make sure that one is off, please? All right, you guys. Well, we're going to continue. We've got this session and one more. And then we're going to be done with our Contending for the Kingdom series. I hope that you guys have found it uh, encouraging and helpful. Um, We're going to look at the Millennial Kingdom today as the as kind of the, the hope of the full establishment of the kingdom. So we've been in the series, we talked about the crisis of hope that a lot of people don't even believe in the return of the Lord. And then we established the implications of the promise of the kingdom coming to earth and how it would come about through the seed through the rulership of David's son on the throne in Jerusalem, establishing righteousness worldwide. And then we talked about how we view prophetic scriptures. And then we talked about how there's no kingdom without a king, and that the longing for the king to come will be the catalyst for his return. But a lot of people just haven't even gone there. You know, that the great hopes of The goodness of God coming to the earth in fullness is related to his coming. And then we talked last week about how preaching the kingdom, what that meant, and how we walk it out. So now today I want to get really practical, and I just want to warn you. I was talking to a buddy earlier, and he had this great analogy. He said, you know, there's moments, Justin, when you're messaging that, You're giving a waterfall, and I feel like I have a Dixie cup. Today's going to be one of those days, probably. I'm going to go into the implications, the practical implications of the millennial kingdom, various promises made about it. And if this is something that's foreign to you, my guess is your Dixie cup is going to be... And you'll be like, whoa, 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 you lost me at point one. I want to encourage you, the reason I do the notes the way that I do them is so that you can take the notes home. There is no way I am going to cover all the scripture verses that I have today. And gang, there's no way that I even included 15% of the ones that are in your Bible about this. There's so much. There is a waterfall. And I want to encourage you today, I'm going to lay out, you know, a buffet table and I'm going to take a plate, and I'm just going to take a tiny little scoop of each you know, item on that buffet table and give you a little taste. But if you actually want to get it in you, you're going to have to go and, and dish up a bigger portion of that for yourself and eat it. Does that make sense? So just, if you're, going to, if you're hoping to walk away this morning fully like understanding, probably not. More than likely, I'm going to introduce some things you've never thought about. And you're going to have to go there and kind of wrestle with it. Is this really true? So I just wanted to give you that warning. And Lord, as we engage in this conversation, as we talk about things that are just not that common to talk about within the body of Christ today, Lord, I ask that you would bring us into true hope, understanding, not for the sake of getting the Bible right for the sake of the anchor of our soul. 
God, would you bring truth this morning? Would you open us up to the great promises that you've given us about the conditions of the earth under the rulership of Jesus and that we would hope for it and picture it, contend for it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so millennial considerations. Millennial means 1,000, 1,000 years. And I want to look specifically at Revelation chapter 20 before we start. This is where this comes from, the term millennial or millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 20, 4 through 6. Let's go ahead and read that together. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, nor received the mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's where we get that term, millennial, millennial kingdom. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him for a thousand years. All right, letter A. At the onset of our study, the millennial promise, it's helpful to understand that there's many who view the 1,000-year time period as symbolic. Simply, it doesn't actually mean 1,000 years. It just means fullness. It just, it's a big number. You know, it's just like when I say forever. That's, you know, that's how a lot of people take it within the body of Christ. I want to be clear on that. Not everybody agrees that it's a 1,000-year period, literally. Because it's so symbolic, generally people who view it symbolically give it very little practical significance. It doesn't have a lot of practical weight because it's just kind of a, you know, a, a symbolism of a big idea, of a long time of righteousness. However, it's our opinion that these time periods spoken of in the book of Revelation are literal and future. So I'm going to present what this leadership team here at Restoration believes and what I believe. But understand that that is opinion. But this session will be presented through that lens, because gang, I can't present it through both. I'm going to present it through the lens that I hold, that this church leadership holds, is that that 1,000-year period is very real, it's very literal, it's yet future, and it's actually 1,000 years. The purpose of this session is to build hope in the coming kingdom. And if we do not have confidence in what our future will actually look like, it's very difficult to establish true hope. The prophetic scriptures are given to us so that they would establish faith and hope in our hearts. Real faith, real hope. And if it's something we can't picture, if it's something that we don't actually know, it is impossible for me to ground you in hope of that thing happening. We've used that example many times in this series of, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Well, if you know for a fact I don't have a million dollars, you're not banking on that. But if I present you with a million dollars, I say, here it is right here. I'm going to give you a little bit of it now just to show you that it's real. But there's a day coming. I'm going to give you this full million. You can see it. There's a whole different way how you're going to live and what you're going to expect. Right? So 
the purpose of this session, the things I'm going to present, I'm presenting to you because I believe they're given to us over and over and over in scriptures as hopes, things that we would say, we know there's goodness coming. We know there's justice coming. We know Jesus is going to return. Because there's so many passages that talk about what that's going to be like. And, and we can actually go, I long for this. And I want to partner with the Lord in seeing it established. So a unique time and season. Why a thousand years? What's that about? Why, why would there be a thousand years set apart from all the rest of eternity? There's some very clear main themes of activities or ideas spoken of in the prophetic scriptures concerning what we'll be doing in the age to come after Jesus returns and begins to establish his kingdom in partnership with us. So what I'm saying here is the point of the thousand years is seen in the main themes that talk about it. So if we read the prophetic, I'm sorry, prophetic scriptures concerning kind of life on the earth under his rule, some main themes really come out and we begin to go, oh, I understand the mission or the purpose of that 1,000 years. Okay, number one. Now get ready. Here comes the waterfall. There might be some things here that you've never considered, and I'm encouraging you. I got a lot of scriptures on this so that you can go home. But here's your little scoop of the buffet, all right? There's going to be unsaved individuals on the earth. After Jesus returns, there will be a group of people who did not worship the Antichrist, who did not wage war upon Jesus, who did not fully give themselves to anti-God wickedness and stand against the Lord and his people. There's going to be those that are saved at his coming. What happens to those people? Right? They go and they're with Jesus. They, they're caught up with the Lord. All right? We've, many of you are familiar with the idea of the rapture. So if you're saved, Jesus comes, you end up being with him where he is. Okay? You're not left on the earth. Okay? You're, you go, I believe you are joined with him and you go to Jerusalem with him. You're not left in the, in the, in the far reaches of the earth. <clears throat> so you have this group that's talked about over and over in Scripture, who's not destroyed at his coming, and they're not with him. So who are they? Well, I, there's many Bible teachers that, that have kind of termed the word resistors. They're, they're saying, nope, we're not Antichrist worshipers, and nope, we're not after Jesus. We're going <laughs> to... We're going <laughs> to... Forgive me. I've just This is how I picture it. We're just going to bury, you know ourselves in our basement and weather the three and a half year tribulate whatever we're not going to turn to either side i'm just going to take care of my family and jesus returns and and they're not on either side i don't know exactly what it looked like but i know that this is a clear clear scriptural idea so i'm going to present a few here it's abundantly clear that upon the return of jesus there will be a remnant of individuals who are not raptured they're not resurrected nor destroyed in the judgment. That's what's going to happen. If Jesus returns, dead bodies are going to shoot out of the ground, live bodies are going to fly up in the air, and the wicked are going to be destroyed. But you got this whole group of people that don't fall in any of those categories. 
Isaiah 11. Let's, we're going to look at that one first. Isaiah 11. We're going to look at verse 9 through 12. <clears throat> they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. The Lord is on the earth at this point. Isaiah 11. I mean, it's just so clear. In that day, there's not going to be any more hurting or destroying in the holy mountain of the Lord. Is that happening now? Very much so. All right? But there's a time coming where the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And in that day, the root of Jesse will be glorious. He'll stand as a banner to all the people. And his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. That's interesting, right? He's reigning from the earth, and he goes, I want to gather people. Wait, wait, didn't you already do that? Because I want to gather the ones that were left. Not the ones that joined me in the sky. Not the ones who rose from the dead at my coming. Not the ones, obviously, clearly, who I judged in my wrath at my return. But those that are left. I'm going to gather them from all areas. I'm going to set up a banner for the nations. And I'll assemble all the outcasts of Israel. Gather together to disperse of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Isaiah chapter 12, so just the next chapter, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12, I want to look at 9 through 10 and then verse 14. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve him as one who grieves for a firstborn. Here's the picture. There's going to be a great war against Jerusalem. Many nations coming to destroy Jerusalem. The Bible talks about clearly about this. It's right about the time the Lord returns. But he goes, in that day that I seek to destroy all those nations that come to Jerusalem, at the same time at my coming, I'm going to pour out spirit of grace and supplication upon those who pierced me. He's been pierced. He's crucified. That's the idea. He goes, they're going to look at me, the one whom they pierced, And they're going to mourn that they missed it, is the idea. For you guys are probably familiar with this passage. And the idea, and he goes into all the mourning that's going to happen in the following verses. I want to skip down to verse 14. All the families that remain are going to be mourning. Every family by itself and their wives by themselves. There's that word remain or left. It's the same idea. But there's going to be, they're going to see him. And they're going to go, we did not recognize 
our Messiah. It's the one we killed. It's the one we rejected. And they're going to mourn. Why are they going to mourn? Because they're going to feel like they missed it. That their Messiah is ruling from Jerusalem with a bunch of people that shot up in the air with him. And they're on the earth ruling and they're crying. Why? Because they're not in the kingdom at that time. And it's their Messiah. It's their great promise. And they're weeping. He says, the weeping that's going to happen. The earth will mourn. Skip a few chapters. It mentions it in, verse thir- or in chapter 13. You get the same thing, that there's a remnant. In Zechariah 14, super interesting. Clearly the Lord has returned. Verse 14.4, that day when he sets his feet on Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. Moving on. I want to pick it up in verse 9. But the context is the Lord, the king from Jerusalem, has come. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day it shall be that the Lord is one and his name is one. That's verse 9. So, when the Lord is the king over the, all the earth, Jesus has returned. Could we just, that's, if we're looking at it literally, that's very clear here. 16 through 18. It shall come to pass that everyone who's left, there it is again, of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem, so there was this time where the nations gathered against Jerusalem to destroy, Jesus returned. Killed all, you know, he judged that army that came up against. But there's people that remained from those nations. Let's say America was one of them. Let's say America said, we're going to wage war on Jerusalem. We're going to go destroy it from the earth. Who would go? Mostly men, probably. The military, for sure. Maybe some others. Right? And there's going to be people, though. There's going to be children and old people who can't go to war. Where are they going to be? They're going to be sitting in America while we go to war. Jesus returns, destroys the nation, that group of people that's actually in Jerusalem waging war, and those rest of the people, there they are in the nations. He said, whatever's left of the families of the earth that did not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, I'm sorry, that which came up against Jerusalem, verse 16, they shall go up from year to year to worship the king in Jerusalem the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is the celebration of the Lord dwelling with his people again. Right? That's the Feast of Tabernacles. He goes, there's going to be a worldwide celebration once a year, and all the nations are going to come, and they're going to celebrate that the Lord came and dwelt with his people again. This is one of the great promises. The Lord's going to dwell on the earth with his people again. He goes, it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Pause. Why would anybody not go up to worship the king? Because they don't want to. They don't believe it. They're not going to join. 
And he goes, this is a, a, a I know if I'm, I'm giving you the waterfall, I'm sorry, little scoop here. There's going to be people on the earth when Jesus returns who are not going to be believers. And even during his reign, they will not believe. It's hard to imagine. But it's so clear in Scripture. And I could, you've got many here to look at. But it says there's going to be nations and people who won't go up and celebrate Jesus as the king of the earth and celebrate that God has come and dwelled with his people again. And when they do that, he's not going to send rain. So, this seems so earthly, doesn't it? Like, why do we need rain? So they can grow crops and eat food and have water to drink. The family of Egypt that will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They will receive the plague, the plague of no rain, for which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, there's such vast implications to this, that there's going to be unsaved individuals on the earth. And we'll get into some of those. But it's clear that one just I'm just trying to lay out, here's a few clear, interesting things about that 1,000-year time period that set it apart uniquely. This is one of them. That there's still going to be unbelievers on the earth. Number two, natural process. Another clear theme seen upon the return of Jesus to restore the earth is that the process of restoration is exactly that, a process. And this main theme generally shocks people when they actually think about it. That the idea of Jesus' return generally has this feeling of, thank goodness he's returned, all is perfect at the moment that he returns. But that's not what we see in Scripture. We see that it's a progressive work that starts upon his return, that he actually, through natural process, begins to restore the earth. He doesn't wave a magical wand. He doesn't cause every mind to just, I don't know what we, how we view it, but I've always kind of thought, like, the moment Jesus returns, I'm going to get it all. Every, I'm just going to have it inserted upon me somehow. And I'm going to know everything, feel the fullness of love, and all that stuff. And so is everybody else. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. He does not, though he could, use his omnipotent power to change everything in a moment or in a day or two at his return. He chooses to rule through human process and human limitations. Why? Because, you guys, it's, he has been about from the beginning friendship, intimacy, and love. And that doesn't cease at his coming. If he just came and waved his magical wand, you know, his omnipotent power, and just by his stroke of his staff made everything perfect and caused us to know everything, then there's really not a place for ruling and reigning with, for intimacy and friendship and questions and learning and growing together with him. Some people don't like that idea. 
They're already frustrated enough going like, ah, this process of sanctification is already like, can we just have a And the Lord's not into that. He's into love and friendship and intimacy. He's not into robots. And that continues at his coming. So many passages, I'm not going to go into them because I'm sure you know them, but there's multiple passages where he says, you will rule and reign with me. And what, like to actually consider what that means, is it means that we will be partnering with him as he restores the earth. We will have jobs to do, we'll be under his leadership, learning with him. This won't be my messaging time as a Bible teacher doesn't cease when Jesus returns. The nations will need to hear still. Discipleship won't stop, evangelism won't stop. We'll be doing it way better, though. (laughs) How many of you guys are just going, I just wish I knew what the Lord wanted me to do? Gang, there's a time coming. You'll know exactly what he wants you to do. You'll be ruling with him. But there'll still be work to do. Many passages here. I'm going to look at, let's look at Matthew 20, right after Matthew 19, where he says, you're going to rule with me. When the son of, at the regeneration, he says, when the Son of Man comes, you're going to rule with me. I'm looking at Matthew 19. That's where he says that. Matthew 20, you got this mom who comes to Jesus. He says, hey, I have a favor to ask you. I love this. This is a great mom. I want all moms to be like this. Jesus, when you come, and restore, when you come to rule the earth, can my two sons be your top guys? Who doesn't want that for their kids? Now, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't go, silly woman. This desire that you have isn't real. They're not going to rule. I'm not going to have a right or a left. It's a spiritual idea. What does he say? He goes, I can't grant that, but it's real. Think about that for a minute. There actually is going to be a right or left. There's going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus. And he says to her, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink or be baptized with the baptism? They said, we're able. They're standing right there when she does it. I love that. Come on, guys. Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, these two. He said, You will indeed drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, but to sit on my right and my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it's been prepared by my Father. He validates it. He goes, it's real, but I can't grant it to these guys right now. 2 Timothy 2 Timothy, um, we, we don't really have like kind of doxologies. In, we have kind of charismatic ones that we throw out there. How about like, well, you know, the Lord will never give you more than you can handle. That's sort of a saying, right? There was a saying. There was a doxology. There was like a little thing that Christians would tell each other all the time. Right here we see one of them in 2 Timothy. 
Paul says this, Therefore I endure, I'm in verse 10 of chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that I might obtain the salvation which Christ Jesus has laid up for me with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. So say this to each other. Encourage one another with this. Let it be kind of the little mantra, right? If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he is faithful, and he cannot deny himself. How ingrained would it be, the idea of actually reigning with Jesus, if this was a saying that we said to each other all the time? If we die with him, we're going to reign with him. And he, Paul presents it as if it's already being said. He goes, just keep saying it. Encourage each other all the time. And we're going to reign with him. And the idea behind that is actually restoring the earth, walking out righteousness, bringing the knowledge of God to all the nations through the rulership of Jesus, restoring devastations. This one's big. The restoration of the earth will start with a clean up and rebuild phase. It's going to be a mess. Devastations and desolations of the earth caused by misuse, ignorance, war, sin, and judgment will all need to be cleaned up and rebuilt. And this is the part where you just go, just wave your wand. All the trash on the sides of the road, can't you just... Because now I'm really about friendship. I want to pick up the trash with you. Ezekiel 39 9 through 16. Now this one's a little bit, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, graphic? Dark? There's a great war right before Jesus returns. He, there's armies gathered to destroy Jerusalem. We already talked about this. Jesus returns, he destroys those armies. And then we get Ezekiel 39, the cleanup project. Now again, I'm doing this not to just be like, I want you to think about cleaning up, you know, garbage and dead bodies. What I'm doing is I'm just saying, how real is this? That we would have these kind of details about that time period. So let's read it. Then those who dwell in the city of Israel go out and they'll set fire and burn weapons. Shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, javelins and spears. They'll make fires with them for seven years. There's never been a war like this. There's never been this sort of mass of weapons and stuff. And he goes, they're going to burn fires for seven years to burn all that garbage. All the leftovers from that war. And he goes, well, maybe that's spiritual. Seven years means something. And it's not actual weapons, it's not actual fires. You can't really do, there's so much here that's just practical, super practical. They will not make wood from the field, nor cut down any from the forest. They will make fires with the weapons. And they'll plunder those who plundered them, and pillage those who pillaged them. He goes, these guys actually brought all this warfare and weapons, 
and they went to plunder Jerusalem, but I destroyed their army, and now they're going to heat their homes for seven years. I actually brought the wood to them. It'll come to pass in that day that I will give Gog, and that's, that's a word for that army, a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass east by the sea. It'll obstruct travelers. There'll be so much devastation and dead bodies, you can't travel through there. That's super, again, it's, it's kind of graphic, but it's so practical. It's like, how could this be spiritual? Because they will bury Gog and all his multitude there. They'll call it the Valley of Hammon Gog, or their burial place. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I'm glorified. This is actually going to be a statement, a seven-month statement, that Jesus came and saved us from our enemies. They will set apart men who are regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they'll make another search. So seven months, it'll be the real, the clear ones that are all over. Then they're going to search more. Why? Because it's actually, there's actually bodies that's very real. And again, this is maybe a little bit much, but here's your Dixie cup, right? <clears throat> a search party is going to pass through the land, and when anybody sees a man's bone, he'll set up a marker till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. The name of the city will be Hamoah. Thus they shall cleanse the land. This is after his return. Amos 9, 14 to 15. <clears throat> I will bring again the captivity, of, the captivity of my people Israel, and they will build waste places. They'll inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards. They'll drink the wine thereof. They're going to make gardens and eat the fruit of them. They're going to plant on their land. And they shall no longer be pulled up out of their land, which I've given them. This is, again, just so prat. Like, what do you picture here? You picture people in human bodies with garden tools, farming and eating the produce of that land. It's not this hyper-spiritual atmosphere. However, it is a restoration it's a rebuilding of the waste places, the desolate places. There's going to be a, a remaking, a rebuilding of the earth in practicals, restoring devastations. I think the first phase of Jesus' return is going to be this phase. So guys, if you're skilled in construction, there's a reason for it. If you're skilled in teaching, there's a reason for it. There's so much things that carry over to the age to come when Jesus returns. All right, now I'm going to give you a whole bunch of them in 10 minutes. So if you thought that was a waterfall, here comes a bigger one. Number one, there's going to be unsaved people who need to hear the gospel, who need to be saved, who need to turn to the Lord. There's going to be witnesses, kingdom witnesses. Just like there is now, there will be in the age to come. We will be those witnesses. 
There's going to be a natural process of bringing righteousness to the earth. It's not going to be a waving of the wand. It's going to be a ruling and reigning with Jesus. It's going to address every sphere of society. And we'll get to that in a second. The Lord will cause you to have a place of leadership in the righteousness coming to the earth. Some of you are going to be gifted in certain governmental areas, some of them in agriculture, some of them in finance, some of them in all sorts of things. I mean, very similar to now, the seven mountains of society, if you want to use that term, the Lord is going to, in process, with us, bring righteousness to every sphere. Restoring righteousness. The depths of this theme would take many sessions to explore. I'm talking especially my style. Session 125. Because there's so much here. The promises that he's going to rule in righteousness and cause all the nations to walk in righteousness means that every aspect of life will be reformed and restored to the point that all things that are thought or done will be thought or done God's way. Think about that. Think about life right now. Think about every sphere of it. The promises of him bringing worldwide righteousness in context to the scriptures is that everything that is thought or done is thought or done of God's way voluntarily. So here we go. Here's just a short list. Theology, worship, government, understanding of creative purpose, legal and social justice, economics, family, healthcare, arts, construction, management of the earth and the natural resources, and zoology. Lila is super excited I put that one in there. Uh, here we go. We're just going to go really quick. Okay, I'm going to give you one verse. Again, here's a little tiny just bloop. Here's a little piece. And I want you to go explore it on your own. Let's look at Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, No, the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. And I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. How about Isaiah 11, chapter 9? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled. All right, on to worship. What's worship going to be like in the age to come? Psalm 72, verse 15. Let's look at that one. He shall live. He's talking about the impressed, those that are, have been um, the poor and that sort of thing that have been given to violence. Those people shall live in that day. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer will be made to him and for him continually. And daily he shall be praised. The worship movement on the earth, the 24-7 worship movement, will be there in the millennial kingdom. It'll be time to go to the prayer meeting in Pagosa Springs. And we'll go to the prayer meeting and we'll actually point our prayers to the man seated on the throne in Jerusalem instead of in heaven. 
And we'll, say, we'll celebrate and worship him in that way. Malachi 1, 11. Here's how I know it's from Pagosa Springs. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered in my name. In every place, worship will arise from the earth. A pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, said the Lord of hosts. There is one passage that said that it'll come from the mountains. I like that part. But you'll have to read that one on your own. It's in here. Government, Isaiah 9, 6. You guys know this one. We sing it. We see it all the time at Christmas. The government shall be upon his shoulder when he returns. Not exaggerating. Not spiritual. For real, the government of the earth be given to him. We guys know that passage. Let's look at Jeremiah 33. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness, where? In the earth. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The city of Jerusalem shall be called the Lord our righteousness, because he dwells there. understanding of created purpose. I already kind of covered this a little bit. Revelation 2 and 3 I really like because Revelation 2 and 3 isn't kind of the disciples. We kind of look at them and say, of course the disciples are going to rule with Jesus, but what about me? He goes, you guys are going to judge the earth with me. He's like, yeah, the 12 guys will, but I don't know about me. Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 are talking to the churches in that day, to every believer within that city that he's addressing. And twice, he does it in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, as he's addressing an entire church body in a certain region. And he says, you will reign with me. I'm going to give you thrones, and I'm going to give you authority, just like the Father gave me authority. There's a day coming, if you'll hold fast, I'm going to give you authority. He does it in Revelation 2, 26 and 3, 21. You can read that on your own. Social justice. Psalm 72, verse 4. There's such a heart for social justice right now. And I think the kingdom needs to be brought to social justice right now. But there is a hope that should be rooted in your heart that every social injustice issue that bothers you, he is going to deal with. Ugh. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. And he will break in pieces the oppressor. Psalm 72 speaking of what it's like when the, when the king rules the earth. Economics and finance. We're going to skip that one. But it talks about how the, all the finances are going to come to him so that he can deal with them righteously. Finances in the age to come. It's hard to think about. There's passages on it. Family. Here's one that's going to get you. I love the passages about family. But again, you have to have a context for life ongoing on the earth. Otherwise, none of these passages make any sense. Isaiah 54, verse 13. Your children will be taught by the Lord. 
and great shall be the peace of your children. Fifty-eight, Isaiah 58, verse 12. Jesus teaching the CEC class. That's what the picture is. From those among you, you shall build the old waste places. Here's this rebuilding. You'll raise up the foundations of what? Many generations. And you shall be called the repairers of the breach, the restorers of the streets to dwell in. Because you're going to raise up foundations that generations and generations will walk on. Jeremiah 33 Again, there will be heard in this place, of which you say, it's desolate without man or without beast in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast, because they've been destroyed by war. In those places, you'll hear the voice of joy and the voice of gladness again, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as of the first. Now, if we actually look at this, like it's fun language. We like the bride and the bridegroom language. He's actually being serious. That there's going to be joy and gladness, and there's going to be such a stability of life that they're going to do marriage and have children. And they're going to know that their children are going to be raised in peace. There's, I have passages on here that says they'll no longer bring forth children with worry, thinking, ah, I don't want them raised in this evil generation. He goes, they're going to bring forth children knowing that their entire existence is going to be peace and prosperity. And that's all they'll ever know. Healthcare, I'm going to... Skip that one. You can read it on your own. Arts, we got to do this one just because it's fun. Because I just pictured Mark Thompson doing this. Or maybe Andrew Chizik. Jeremiah 31. And uh, Matt, you can come on up, bud. <clears throat> this is talking about the time the Lord returns. Jeremiah 31, verse 13. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance. And the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy. I'll comfort them and make them rejoice rather than in sorrow. Now here's what's interesting. I've actually researched this passage quite a bit. He says in the dance. Now it doesn't say they're going to have dancing. That's, you know, they're, the nation dancing, that sort of thing. It's an interesting phrase. And all the scholars that, you know, all know all the thing about um, Hebrew words say that this is referring to a specific dance that the Lord is going to initiate and teach and have them do. Look who's going to dance it. Old men and young men. <laughs> Come on, gang. Andrew, one of, just a, one of my most solid friends. You guys know Andrew Cheesy, but he's a real stoic guy, right? I've been at multiple dances with him, you know, in Pagosa or whatever, and and I'm out there dancing with Tara and Andrew. He's. I say, Andrew, go dance with Davina. 
I don't dance. Andrew, you're going to dance, buddy. (laughs) They will do the dance. Jeremiah 31. Many other passages. Construction, I like this one. They'll say in a land that was desolate, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. There's that restoration. The wasted place is desolate. The ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I'm the Lord, for I have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. The the, the picture of the recreation of Eden is done through process with the Lord, with the building of buildings and the planting of gardens and the, the doing of irrigation and water. It talks about that in other passages. Isaiah 41. I will open up rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness a cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree, and I'll set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine tree and the box tree together. Isaiah 41 is talking about the restoration of earth. He goes, I'm going to plant trees. How many of you guys thought, man, when Jesus comes back, let's plant trees. Of course, we know some of the passages about the change of the animal kingdom and how there's going to be harmony in the animal kingdom and the wolf's going to lie down with the lamb and the bear and the ox are going to dwell together and they're going to all eat grass. And we look at these and go, what is that? It's a restoring that Adam and Eve were not afraid of the animals and the animals weren't afraid of them. They slept in the wilderness and they didn't worry about bears coming into the tent. There's a passage, I've got it highlighted, Ezekiel 34. They're going to sleep in the wilderness. Why? Because I'm going to cause peace between them and the beasts. Amen. There it is. There's, there's so much there, guys, and I'm just, I know maybe some of you are going, what is this? And I'm saying, there is so much here. There are so many passages that we have breezed over and have just kind of caused them to mean something, I don't know, something, it just means good stuff's going to happen. But if we actually look at it, he's being so specific. Why? Because, gang, he's showing us the million dollars. And he's saying it's real. Put your hope in it. He is the great hope of the earth. The fullness of life exists with him. Not just in here, but when he rules the fullness of life for the earth. In every sphere. Here's my prayer. That that if you're struggling, you know, if if you're sitting here going... I just don't have a grid for any of that. My prayer is that you begin to just ask the question. 
Is it real? Ask the Lord. Sit down with your Bible. Take some of these passages out. Read through them and say, is Justin off his rocker, Holy Spirit? Is there really hope here? Is this something I'll see, experience? And if it is, Ruth, there is a hope. There is a anchor for your soul. There's a place that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything that hurts your heart about the stuff that you see in life now, he has an answer for. For real. He will make every wrong thing right. He will bring righteousness to the earth. And that begins to cause us to live now as greater kingdom witnesses. Because we see he's going to deal in worldwide education and worldwide government and worldwide finances and farming and construction and there's a righteousness to it all. And it begins to touch every part of life. And you begin to be a true kingdom witness in every aspect. And to hope for it and long for it for real. Amen and amen. There's a lot there. These little snippets of scriptures that I give you, read the bigger chapter. Especially in uh, Jeremiah's 33, 31. We, we quoted that one quite a bit. That entire, many of those entire little snippets of scripture are entire passages about what life will be like. Let's go ahead and stand up. passages talk about this, that that branch of the Lord will be seen as beautiful, will be seen as righteous, will be seen for who he is, will be worshipped and praised for all he has done. Lord, I ask that you would build a hope in us, that we would familiarize ourselves with the promises that you gave us, that there'd be a contending for the kingdom now in this age, for every aspect, as much as you'll give us, that there'd be a witness to the coming kingdom and God build in us a longing for its fullness, to do it with you in actuality, ruling and reigning. And we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Lord, I pray right now just for the practicals of safety as folks go home. God, would you keep families safe, keep individuals safe as they drive on these roads? Lord, we thank you for the snow that you're giving us. We ask for safety for over this city right now, for everybody traveling through it. Amen. Matt, why don't you go ahead and sing? If you guys need to head out, but Matt's just going to do some worship, and I want to worship with them. If you need prayer for anything, 
Andrew, come on up. Mark, would you mind just coming up? Maybe, depending on how you feel. Jeff, come on up. If you have needs this morning, we want to pray for you. If you need to head out, we love you. We'll see you next week.